is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning here on KGMI. Well, we've got a stock market conundrum. You know, the economy's growing, still growing. Real GDP rose at a solid 3.3% annual rate in the fourth corner. Consumer spending was strong in December, meaning the first quarter is off to a good start. New home sales came in above expectations. Initial jobless claims remained low. Although orders for durable goods came in low due to a weak demand for aircraft. But all eyes were on this Friday's jobs report. And the strength of employment, we think, though, seems fragile. If we exclude job gains in government, health, and education, which are largely funded by the government, and leisure and hospitality, which is still covering, recovering from lockdowns, and job growth looks exceptionally weak. In the last seven months of 2023, payrolls excluding those categories rose only about 3000 a month, the kind of weakness that you might expect before a recession. In other words, much of recent growth is fueled by government deficits. Meanwhile, the stock market continues to rally with the S&P 500 closing at a new record high. That's great, but we aren't exactly sure what the market sees. If the economy remains healthy and keeps growing, it's very hard to imagine that the Federal Reserve cutting short-term interest rates by one and a quarter to one and a half or 125 to 150 basis points that the markets appear to expect. In turn, less rate cutting than the market expects should be a headwind for equities in 2024. What would get the Fed to cut rates by 120 to 150 basis points? Again, that's one and a quarter percent to one and a half percent. Either a sharp drop in inflation or a decline in economic growth. And while lower inflation is good, can a sharp drop happen without a weak economy? Either way, we don't think the stock market would like the outcome because they would likely signal lower corporate profits. This is all consistent with our capitalized profits model, which says that stocks are overvalued. The model uses economy-wide profits from the GDP accounts, excluding profits or losses by the Fed, and discounts them by the 10-year Treasury yield. Using the level of profits in the third quarter, we aren't going to get those fourth quarter numbers for profits until the end of March, at a 10-year yield of 4%, which was its yield before rate cut expectations started to evaporate, it suggests that the S&P 500 would be fairly valued around 3900 to 4000 That's well below the recent highs. So what would it take to suggest that recent stock market prices are appropriate? Well, first of all, if we had a 10-year yield of 3.2%, that would do it if yields went down that much. So would a 30% increase in profits. But a 3.2% yield would probably be accompanied by lower profits, and a 30% surge in profits would likely be accompanied by a much higher 10-year yield. So fair value is even further away than what it seems. The only way out of this conundrum is an artificial intelligence, and new and rapidly advancing technologies provide a miraculous boost to productivity. This could keep growth strong or even accelerate it while bringing inflation down. In other words, profits up and interest rates down. And while this could happen, 
it would take a miracle. And while expecting miracles worked for the San Francisco fans, here this last weekend, San Francisco football fans, we still think investors should remain cautious. The monetary and fiscal stimulus that made COVID lockdowns seem like a bump in the economic road are starting to wear off. So let's look at our global wrap-up for the week. And we're seeing that the rate cuts and hopes have dimmed amid strong U.S. data. But however, global equities were higher on the week. Solid earnings reports from several big cap tech companies. The yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury note fell 0.15 to 4%. Looks to be set the week. End of the week, well above its lowest levels after concerns over the health of U.S. regional banks reemerged at midweek, contributing to a drop in yields to as low as 3.82% on Thursday. The price of barrel of West Texas intermediate crude oil slumped more than $5 to $72.10, and volatility is measured by the CBOE Volatility Index, or VIX, was steady at 13.9. Looking at our macro news, we saw U.S. payrolls continue to swell. Non-farm payrolls in the United States rose 353,000. That was doubling estimates, while revisions to the prior two months added another 126,000 jobs to the January tally, and annual revisions added 359,000 jobs to the 2023 total. So the month-over-month reading for average hourly earnings also doubled expectations, rising six-tenths of one percent from the month before, while gaining four and a half percent from a year ago. However, hours worked declined to the lowest level since the start of the pandemic in March of 2020, and the unemployment rate held steady at 3.7 percent. These data, along with a bounce back in the manufacturing sector and strong consumer confidence readings, have prompted investors to pare back bets that the Federal Reserve will begin cutting rates over the next few meetings. Odds of a quarter percent cut at the March meeting have fallen to 20 percent from over 50 percent a week ago, and the likelihood of a May cut has also fallen. So, the Fed drops its tightening bias, but it signals no cut is imminent. Fed Chair Jerome Powell this Wednesday said that members of the Federal Open Market Committee want to feel more confident that inflation is on a sustainable path towards a 2% target before they start cutting interest rates. He took the unusual step of essentially ruling out a cut as early as March, prompting the market to shift expectations to a first reduction in May. The Fed Chair said that he sees greater risk of inflation stabilizing meaningfully above the Fed's target than there being a reacceleration in price gains. The Fed will discuss shrinking its balance sheet at its March meeting. And we're seeing the bank CRE exposure, or credit exposure, is back in the spotlight. A sharp drop in share price of New York Community Bank Corp after the company slashed its dividend and increased its loan loss reserves, prompted a broad decline in U.S. regional bank shares late this week, as the sector's exposure to the troubled commercial real estate sector burps back into the spotlight. CRE concerns were not limited to the United States, however, as the two foreign banks, Japan's Azora Bank and Germany's Deutsche Bank, each raised loan loss reserves due to the U.S. commercial real estate loans. Real estate analytics firm Trap reports that banks face about $560 billion in commercial mortgage loan maturities by the end of 2025. 
And Lagarde keeps her eyes on wages, and that's European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde. She said this week that the Central Bank's governing council is unanimous in its view that its next move will be to cut rates, though she said more data is needed and we're not there yet on inflation. Wage data will be particularly important in the ECB calculus, she said. It's reported this week that the Eurozone unemployment rates held steady at a record low of 6.4% in November. And some quick hits here. The Washington Post reports that presumptive Republican U.S. presidential nominee Donald Trump is considering levering 60% tariffs on imports from China if he's re-elected. He also told Fox Business that he would not reappoint Jerome Powell to a third term as Fed chair when his current term expires in 2026. And Saudi Arabia has scrapped plans to expand its country's oil production capacity to 13 million barrels a day from its current 12 million barrels over the coming years. At present, the kingdom is producing roughly 9 million barrels a day, doesn't see the need to increase medium-term capacity. They also announced that they are resuming defense talks with the United States that were paused at the outset of the Israeli-Hamas war. And unable to reach agreement with its creditors, the Chinese property developer Evergrande has ordered to liquidate by a court in Hong Kong. And Chinese shares are off to a bad start at 224. The Shanghai Composite Index is losing 6.25% in January. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be right back. Pack your bags. It's time for fun in the sun with Barron's Spring Break Getaway Giveaway. Any Barron purchase now through February 29th enters you for a chance to win. Whether it's a new comfort system, maintenance, or a tankless water heater, you could win a trip for four. Cabo, Hawaii, or cruising the Pacific. Picture yourself soaking up the rays with Barron's Spring Break Getaway Giveaway. And that's not all. Save up to $7,000 on an energy-efficient Daikin Fit Enhanced Heat Pump, providing year-round comfort that both heats and cools. Plus, it qualifies for the 25C tax credit. Or choose same-as-cash financing. Install today and pay nothing until next year. Every Barron purchase could be your ticket to a dream destination in Barron's Spring Break Getaway Giveaway all February. And Barron's Silver Shield members get 10 extra entries. Not a member? Sign up today. Don't wait for that ship to sail. Call now. Barron, your full-service HVAC, electrical, and plumbing contractor. Our mission, improving lives. No purchase necessary. Visit BarronHeating.com for details. Honey, look what I brought home. Not a cat. You know I'm allergic. Well, you know what they say. When the cat's away, the mice will play. <laughs> Why didn't you just call Biobug? Have you had enough of playing cat and mouse? Biobug Pest Management is here to help. Whether you have rats or mice in your business, residence, or commercial building, Biobug is committed to providing a solution that's right for you. To learn more and get your free quote, visit Biobug.com. Biobug Pest Management. Service you trust, experience you expect. Now hiring service Staying connected with your community each Saturday at noon with KGMI's Community Connection as local business leaders share their expert advice. Sponsored by Vibrant USA, Pacific Security, Lighthouse Mission Ministries, Feller Heating and Air Conditioning, and Columbia Fire. Community Connection, Saturdays at noon on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all 
things were gone I'd worked for all my life And I had to start again With just my children and my wife Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning here on KGMI. As always, we thank you for being with us. We are Asset Advisors. We are located out on the Pacific Highway. That's in the Pacific Commerce Center. It's about halfway to Ferndale on the right-hand side, out there next to Wilson's Furniture. Wilson's is just to the north of us. Hot Tubs Northwest is on the south corner. Anyway, our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number 360-733-1200. And check out our website at wealthwakeup.com. Well, according to Bloomberg, continuing on with this week's global roundup, U.S. investment-grade corporate bond issuance hit a record of $188 billion in the month of January. In the conference board's U.S. Consumer Confidence Index rose to 114.8 in January. That's up from 108 in December, and that's its highest level since the end of 2021. We also saw U.S. President Joe Biden said this week that he holds Iran responsible for the death of three service members after an attack in an outpost in Jordan by militias supplied by Iran. However, he also said the U.S. does not seek to widen the war in the Middle East, but there were some retaliation Friday afternoon. We'll see. And so China's composite purchasing matters index rose to 50.9 in January from 50.3 in December, though the manufacturing sector continues to contract. And the divided Bank of England held rates steady this week. Two policymakers voted for a hike, while one voted to cut rates. The Institute of Supply Management's manufacturing index rose to 49.1 in January from 47.1 in December as the new orders component jumped to 52.2 from 47. Economic growth in Canada ticked up in November, expanding at a 1.1% annual rate. That's faster than the 9 tenths of 1% pace that had been set in October. And the Eurozone avoided a technical recession after the fourth quarter gross domestic product rose a tenth of 1%. That offset a third quarter decline. Looking at earnings news so far this quarter, with just 45% of the constituents of the S&P 500 index having reported for the fourth quarter of 2023, blended earnings per share, which combines reported data with estimates for those that have yet to report, shows that earnings rose 1.5% compared with the same quarter a year ago. According to data from FactSet, sales growth is up 3.4% year over year. So let's go into that January employment report with a little bit more detail here. First of all, we think a March rate cut is dead as a doornail, and the job market isn't quite as strong as the headlines have said. First, the good news. Non-farm payrolls increased 353,000 in January. That's the largest gain in the year, and well higher than the forecast from many economics group, according to Bloomberg. In addition, gains in November and December revised upward by 126,000. So we like to follow payrolls, excluding government, because it's not the private sector. Education and health services, because it's a rise for structural and demographic reasons and usually don't decline even in recession years, and leisure and hospitality, which is still recovering from COVID lockdowns. 
That core measure of payrolls rose 194,000 in January, which is the best month since mid-2022. Although civilian employment, which is an alternative measure for jobs that includes small business startups, declined by 31,000, this is the month every year when the Labor Department updates its estimates of the U.S. population, which affects the employment numbers and makes them not directly comparable to prior months. Meanwhile, unemployment remained at a low of 3.7%. What will surely get the Federal Reserve's attention is a six-tenths of 1% increase in average hourly earnings, which are now up 4.5% versus a year ago, not much different than the 4.6% increase in the year ending in January of 23. If the Fed wants 2% inflation, given long-term productivity trends, they probably want to see wages growing closer to 3.5% a year, not 4.5%. But then here's the bad news. In January, in spite of solid payroll numbers, total hours worked in the private sector declined 3 tenths of 1%. In January, they were up a meager 3 tenths of 1% versus a year ago. That drop in hours is the equivalent of losing 465,000 jobs. Average hour, weekly hours haven't been this low since March of 2020 with the onset of COVID. So what this means is that businesses have added lots of jobs in the past year. They're paying their workers more per hour, but they're finding less for them to do. In turn, this is consistent with our view that companies have gotten out over their skis in terms of hiring, a recipe for later layoffs later this year. Total payrolls were up 1.9% in the last year. That's a pace that would be normal in the middle of an economic expansion when the unemployment rate and available workers is much higher than today. A weaker job market is heading our way. In recent news, Americans have bought cars and light trucks at a 15 million annual rate in January. That's down 6.9% from December and 7 tenths of 1% lower than a year ago. This means that retail sales are likely to have fallen in January as well. And we got the January ISM Manufacturing Index report out this week, and the activity in the U.S. manufacturing sector contracted for the 15th consecutive month in January, but the details of the report show some signs of improvement. On the surface, just four of 18 industries reported growth in January. So despite narrow growth, survey comments were cautiously positive, citing a good start to the year. But with a note of caution as the U.S. economic outlook continues to weigh on activity. Perhaps the best news comes from the New Orders Index, which moved into expansion territory for the first time in 17 months. Meanwhile, output remained stable as the production index ticked up to 50.4. So despite signs of improvement, demands remained soft. And with output skating along, the backlog of orders continues to contract, now for 16 consecutive months. But something has to give. Either new orders pick up or production falls. We expect the latter. When looking at the big picture during COVID, a combination of shelter-in-place orders and extra compensation from the government in the form of stimulus checks and abnormally large unemployment benefits artificially boosted goods-related activity. Then the economy reopened and consumers began shifting their spending preferences back to a more normal mix, away from goods and back to services. The ISM index peaked in March of 21. That's the last month federal stimulus checks were sent out.
it's been on a downward trajectory since. We continue to believe a recession is lurking in the year ahead, and the manufacturing sector is likely to lead the way. Case in point, hiring activity in the manufacturing sector contracted for its fourth consecutive month, as companies continued reducing headcounts in January with significant layoff activity, and while quit rates remained at 12-month lows. We believe investors should remain cautious, as the monetary and fiscal stimulus that made COVID lockdowns seem like a bump in the economic road wear off. In other news, construction spending increased 9 tenths of 1% in December, but that was driven by large increases in highway and street projects, as well as in home building. And we got the non-farm productivity report out. Also, the non-farm productivity rose at a 3.2% annual rate in the fourth quarter, as both output and hours rose, but output rose at a faster pace, leading to more output per hour. Productivity rose at 2.7% in 23, offsetting a drop at 2% in 22. Since the peak of business cycle right before COVID, productivity is up at a 1.6% annual rate. That's very close to the 1.5% average of the past 20 years. Even though inflation is still elevated, real inflation-adjusted compensation per hour grew at a 9 tenths of 1% annualized rate in the fourth quarter, is up 1.8% in the last year after steep declines in 21 and 22. Since the pre-COVID peak, real compensation is up 6 tenths of 1% annual rate very close to the 7 tenths of 1% pace in the last 20 years. And on the manufacturing front, productivity rose at a 2.3% annualized rate in the fourth quarter, but also not for great reasons as both output and hours declined, but hours fell faster than output, meaning output per hour rose. Most of the manufacturing data that we have received over the last year have shown that manufacturing continues to decelerate, except where government subsidies have temporarily boosted activity. Expect hours and output in this sector to continue to weaken in the quarters ahead. In other news, on the employment front, initial jobless claims rose 9,000 last week to 225,000. Meanwhile, continuing claims rose 70,000 to 1.89 million. Also on the labor front, ADP's measure of private payrolls increased 107,000 in December versus consensus expected 150,000. Also, in recent housing news, home prices are showing consistent gains after a drop in late 22. The National Case Shiller Index rose two-tenths of 1% in November, while the FAFH Index rose three-tenths of 1%. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up. We'll be right back. We don't have the usual traffic jams that they have in the big city, but sometimes things happen to snarl everything up. Depend on KGMI to keep you cruising to your destination with KGMI traffic alerts. We'll tell you where the trouble spots are. And if you see problems on the road, give us a call at 360-676-5464 so we can spread the word. KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. Whatcom County and Northwest Washington offer endless beauty, and our phones make it possible for us to capture it instantly. And now KGMI is giving you another way to share your incredible pictures with Whatcom Wanderings. Just go to KGMI.com, look for Whatcom Wanderings, post your photos, and tell us where you took them. So share your pictures of our area's incredible beauty and complexity with Whatcom Wanderings at KGMI.com. 
64, Medicare. So many of us get hung up on our age, but what we fail to realize, we've been paying for health insurance since we were old enough to work, which means we may actually be getting a raise once we're on Medicare. Sound complicated? Let D&D Insurance help make the complicated task of enrolling for your health insurance a little less complicated. I'm Derek, and my wife Denise and I, along with our amazing staff of family and friends, keep things running here at D&D Insurance. We try to help anyone and everyone navigate this ever changing world of health insurance. Whether you're retiring and trying to figure out Medicare supplements and Medicare Advantage plans, or you're self-employed and needing a plan for yourself and family, we're here to help. We're located across the street from Industrial Credit Union in the Ferndale Market Center. See you at D&D Insurance, where we try to make the complicated uncomplicated. You've earned a retirement and you're ready to fully embrace it. So why not do it with style at Meadow Greens Retirement? You'll enjoy active, independent living with amenities like the library lounge, wellness program, and expansive social calendar. Indulge in three daily meals made from scratch, get pampered at the on-site salon, and join in for Friday night socials. Meadow Greens is active retirement, the only locally owned retirement facility in the county with one and two bedroom apartments with full kitchens offering the freedom of eating in or enjoying a meal at the Outward Nine or the Duck Hook Bistro. Meadow Greens can also be of help when it's time to transition from an independent apartment to assisted living. Hi, I'm Josh Howe, director here at Meadow Greens. I'd like to personally invite you to come to our community. I look forward to showing you all that we have to offer. Call Meadow Greens today to arrange a private tour at 354-8200 and online at meadowgreenslinden.com. Grass is always greener in Meadow Greens. You still thinking job change in the new year? Yeah, I need something that's in high demand and more stable in this economy. IT? Yeah, cybersecurity, maybe even AI. That's what I did. Really? How? Went to my computer career. You don't need any prior experience, and you could start your new career in a matter of months. A lot of IT pros go to school there, too, to level up. Sweet. Are classes online or on campus? Both. Wow, I'll check it out. Thanks. Make this your year. Take the free career evaluation now at mycomputercareer.edu. Financial aid is available. For qualified students, including the GI Bill. As a mom, comforting my family is what I do best. Vicks Vapor Stick provides soothing, non medicated Vicks Vapors in an easy to apply stick, and it dries fast so there's no mess. I use it to comfort myself <sighs> and my family. <sighs> Thanks, Mom. Vicks Vapor Stick, soothing comfort for the whole family. And when you need more comfort for yourself, try Vicks Vapor Shower for steamy Vicks Vapors. Use is directed. Vapor Stick for use ages four and up. Vapor Shower use for adults only. MyBellinghamNow.com is an exciting new news site covering Bellingham, Whatcom, and surrounding areas. Breaking news, community and business updates, local crime and sports reports, the stories that connect us and make this an incredible place to call home. Connect with our community like never before on the all-new MyBellinghamNow.com. And the best part, it's 100% free. No news hidden behind a paywall ever. MyBellinghamNow.com. Your community, your news, just a click away. MyBellinghamNow.com. KGMI Connects with Joe Tian is about our community and you. you got a great program. You want to make it better? I do. Okay, here we go. For one hour of John and Rich. <laughs> and you are the referee. Join us each weekday at 4 p.m. for KGMI Connects. Those two guys are like Abbott and Costello. On KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. 
The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. No gimmicks, just the highest quality systems, 0% interest financing, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Rely on West Mechanical Heating, Air Conditioning, and Electrical. Contact them today at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and mybellinghamnow.com. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning. Well, let's take a look at the summary of the Mayday. That's, in this case, the Federal Reserve's report from their meeting on Wednesday. Rate hikes are in the rearview mirror. Now the issue is when the Federal Reserve starts to cut. The Fed didn't change short-term interest rates, nor did it alter the pace of quantitative tightening but it did use both the statement and Chair Powell's press conference to guide expectations for the path of normalization in the year ahead. Starting out with a statement, there were a number of changes from December, including the removal of text about tight financial and credit conditions being likely to weigh on economic activity and the addition of a new text that the committee does not expect it will be appropriate to reduce the target range until it has gained greater confidence that inflation is moving substantially beyond 2%. And while inflation remains the current focus, the Fed highlighted the balance of risk between inflation and employment goals are coming into better balance. So this is understandable given that inflation is trending down. Schumer price index rose 3.4% in 2023. That's versus 6.5% rise in 22, while unemployment has slowly crept higher. But much of the improvement in last year's inflation readings was due to energy, which has declined 2% in the past 12 months. And the core CPI is still up a worrisome 3.9% from a year ago compared to 5.7% in 22. And we believe the Fed is likely to have more trouble getting broad measures of inflation, like CPI, through the final stretch than it has had in bringing inflation down over the last year. That said, Powell's comments during the press conference sang a more confident tune. He stated that incoming data was been in line with what the Fed wants to see to start the rate cut process. And they don't have a reason to expect positive progression of inflation data will shift in the months ahead. The Fed's reason for remaining on pause is that they simply want to see the trend continue for a longer period to build greater confidence than than it will hit and sustain their 2% inflation target. When asked if that confidence could come by the next meeting in March, Powell responded that he doesn't think the committee will have broad confidence that soon suggesting that May is very likely to be the start of the next cut cycle. In our opinion, the Fed's primary focus should be on not cutting rates too aggressively or prematurely, which could reignite inflation problem like the Fed did on multiple occasions during Chairman Arthur Burns in the 1970s. The economy is still growing, but we think it falls into a recession before the year is out and the real GDP growth significantly lags predictions of the FOMC members. 
Given that the Fed has now signaled 75 basis points in rate cuts, even in an environment of moderate growth, if we are right about slower growth, it'll be a very difficult year for the Fed to resist generating higher inflation in 2025 and beyond. So again, the warning is, don't cut those rates too soon because you may have to raise them again. Okay, well, required minimum distributions. You better get ready for higher RMDs this year. Now, what are RMDs? Well, RMDs are those required minimum distributions that retirees have to take out of their retirement accounts. And last year's strong market performance means that this year's required minimum distributions are likely to rise for many retirees. For some, that's good news, but for others, not so much. Let's talk a little bit about how RMDs work. Of course, they are the amount of money that people 73 and older must withdraw from their tax-deferred retirement accounts by year-ends. That's IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, other types of retirement plans. These distributions are calculated by dividing a retirement account's returns at the end of the previous year. So taking those 12, 31, 2023 balance, and you take that and divide that using a table by a current life expectancy, and that gives us the RMD amount. So somebody age 73, a little bit less than 4% of their account that they have to withdraw. The life expectancy factor decreases every year. So the combined with a larger year-end balance, it means higher RMDs. So because accounts went up last year, and because somebody got older, the actual factor that you're using age expectancy goes down, so that means the RMD becomes higher. And to be sure, there are some who won't face distribution increases. For those that are heavily weighted in, in tech or index funds, however, the gains be much larger than those that were heavily weighted in dividend or value stocks. But after 23's robust returns, you would be hard-pressed to find someone with a smaller distribution in 2024. There are some differing opinions, however. There are some advisors that say that some should be celebrating, that a higher RMD is good news for everyone, individuals, households, and local economy. On the other side of that same argument, RMDs are never good news. By definition, the account owner is being forced, required, to withdraw from their retirement account, and that withdrawal comes with taxes at ordinary tax rates. However, it's also important to remember that the retirement accounts have been growing at a compounded tax-deferred rate, often over several decades, and that is in itself good news. So there's some other good news. For those who use their required minimum distributions to pay their living expenses, this year's increase is a bonus. RMDs can be used in positive ways, like reducing debt, building cash in an emergency fund, or investing the excess. And the higher distribution signifies that your retirement accounts have recovered a good amount of the assets that you withdrew in the prior year. But then the bad news. The extra cash can also be a problem, especially for people who have other income or do not need all of their RMDs in order to finance their lifestyle. In some cases, it's going to push some into a higher tax bracket. And not only could it trigger higher tax on Social Security benefits possibly, but it could also force a surcharge on some of your future Medicare premiums, which are also based on past income. So for the affluent, the burden is more pronounced, potentially exposing 
you do a 3.8% surtax on investments, referring to an extra tax on net investment income for those who have modified adjusted gross income exceeds 200,000 as an individual or 250,000 for married couples. Those in lower incomes could suffer also. The additional income may impact your ability to qualify for subsidies for health insurance or reduced property taxes. What's more, the bigger withdrawal decreases the total retirement portfolio and its future growth potential. But there are some solutions. One of those is taking advantage of qualified charitable donations. We do a ton of them here at the office. And basically, we help you with careful planning to help you be better prepared. One option for reducing those taxes and RMDs is to use qualified charitable donations, which allow you to transfer withdrawals from your retirement account directly to a 501c3 charity. This year, the limit on transfers has been raised to $105,000 that you can donate to a charity. Up to that amount, you get the entire RMD to eliminate tax consequences. The funds don't count towards your adjusted gross income. They don't trigger Medicare surcharges on the 3.8% tax on investments for the wealthy. And qualified charitable donations can be made from IRAs by anyone that's over 70 and a half. So even if you don't have to do RMDs yet, over 70 and a half, you can do them. Therefore, it can be used to reduce your IRA balances before those RMD requirements and distributions go into effect. One of the other options is Roth conversions. Maybe convert some of your retirement account funds to Roths. You pay income tax on the conversion because Roths are funded with after-tax dollars. But the move is going to reduce the size of retirement accounts and therefore the size of future required minister distributions, but only future RMDs, not current ones. Roth conversions require paying taxes up front, and you can't use RMD money for Roth conversions, so it has to be money that's still in the account. So it needs to be done before the RMD age to really be effective, or if you do it, you have to still pay out that RMD first. You should only pursue this option if you have access to outside or other tax funds to cover the tax burden. This year isn't the best time for Roth conversions. If it isn't, then maybe it's best done in your lower RMD years. So again, it's a case of sitting down and taking a look at your situation. We've got a tax program that we can run where we put your tax return in for 2022 or 23 here shortly. We can run that 23 return and talk about what advantages you may have for either doing qualified charitable donations or doing Roth conversions. But in other words, you need to plan ahead. This year highlights how important it is to spend some time planning around your current needs and your future needs. But there are also some special circumstances that may affect you. Those that are still employed are exempt from taking RMDs if you are working for an employer. That's unless you own 5% or more of the business but they're still required to take RMDs from their IRAs. So if you have an IRA, you have to, but if you're still working, working for an employer, you have money in an employer plan, you do not have to start taking money. Another consideration is whether the required distributions come from inherited IRAs. According to the SECURE Act 2.0, all funds in inherited IRAs must be distributed by the end of the 10th year of the original owner's death, unless the heir is the spouse, a dependent minor child, disabled or otherwise determined. If the original owner's death occurred in 2019 or earlier, the funds can be, must be withdrawn over a shorter period of time. There is some confusion, however, as to whether there are RMD requirements before year 10. IRS tried to interpret it where you had to start taking money out starting year one, but the last three years they have waived that requirement. We're keeping close track on that one. 
Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be back shortly. Hi, it's Scott from Northwest Sleep Solutions. You know, it's interesting how over the years, every time we sell a bed to somebody, what it comes down to is that person's personal comfort. You come in, you figure out a bed that feels good to you, and then we give you some choices of things that have that same feel. With that said, I find it amazing that we're seeing so many beds bought online now. We hear it every day. I bought a bed online, I don't like how it feels, and now I'm going through the painful process of returning it. And to me, that's just so wasteful when the number one thing about buying a bed is your comfort. So I invite you to come into Northwest Sleep. Gosh, we've got 33, 35 beds here to choose from. You can definitely lay on it, see what you think. At that point, we can narrow it down and deliver it out to you. So come see us at Northwest Sleep Solutions in Ferry. Northwest Sleep Solutions, the solution for a good night's sleep. E&W Perks is satisfying your sweet tooth this week with the Slice of Heaven Bakery and Cafe. Thursday at 8 a.m., you can get a $50 gift certificate to Slice of Heaven for just $25. Slice of Heaven Bakery and Cafe is your go-to spot for sweet treats and tasty meals in Bellingham. Slice of Heaven is family-owned and operated with treats and meals that will be sure to satisfy your taste buds on any day. Stop in for an extravagant variety of rotating baked goods, including cupcakes, dessert bars, massive cake slices, brownies, ice cream, and a cafe serving all-day breakfast, plus lunch and dinner options like soup and sandwiches and your favorite comfort food. Looking for a custom cake designed and crafted to your desires? Look no further than Slice of Heaven Bakery and Cafe. Specializing in wedding and custom cake designs, they'll cover all of your wants and needs for that special cake to make your big day or event that much sweeter. Thursday at 8 a.m., spend $25 and get a $50 gift certificate to the Slice of Heaven Bakery and Cafe. Only at pnwperks.com. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning. As always, if you got questions for me, give me a call. 360-733-1200. Well, I'm going to focus a little bit here on a report we saw coming out this week about financial literacy and how financial literacy struggles persist. The majority of the U.S. states are unprepared to educate Gen G on personal finance and that personal finance courses in high schools are the key to elevating financial literacy rates, especially among young adults seeking advice on how to prepare for their lives and financial independence. As members of Generation Z, those are the ones born between 1997 to 2012, grow older. They begin to equip themselves for lives of financial independence. Most realize that they are unprepared only after they're facing financial challenges. In the absence of federal mandate of personal finance education within K-12 curricula, most states and schools find themselves challenged in providing comprehensive financial literacy education. That's a subject that is generally sought after by a current generation. So why do we have a need for financial literacy? Well, America generally struggles when it comes to making sound financial decisions. Many U.S. adults say that they feel incapable of taking on financial independence out of fear that they can't handle their own money. The 23 report from the Ramsey Foundation of Education focus echoes this notion, the most jarring statistic being that 88% of U.S. adults feel unprepared to call their own financial shots. 
saying that their high schools did not stress the importance of learning personal finance enough. With schools unable to help young Americans become financially literate, they enter the real world without knowing how to take care of their money. So what's the problem? Well, the Center for Financial Literacy at Champion College in Vermont issued report cards to the 50 states as part of its 2023 study, grading each in its ability to provide students with proper education and personal finance. Of the 50 states in the District of Columbia, just 7 or 14% received an A in their report cards. That was an improvement of a mere two states from the results of the same study, which was carried out in 2017. The states that received an A require students to take a semester-long personal finance course or its equivalent. The rest of the grades were as follows. 21 states had Bs, 13 Cs, 5 Ds, and 5 Fs. And the states that received an F, virtually no requirements for personal finance education in high school. When you look at those states that have substantial requirements versus states that don't, specifically with people in ages 18 to 25 after a mandate kicks in, what you see is that in the states that require more, they have better credit scores and lower 90-day default rates on debt. If they go to college, they graduate with less credit card debt and better student loan behaviors. Even at face value, these statistics reveal some glaring issues within schools. The first being that the majority of states are unprepared to educate their students in basic personal finance. The survey results also revealed that 34% of Americans report having too much debt. Just over half, 53%, have emergency savings to cover an unexpected expense. When asked if they engaged in costly credit card behavior, 43% of them said yes. But there is hope on the horizon. These statistics are unnerving, but they're not static. To satisfy Gen Z's outcry of financial literacy, many states are beginning to pass laws mandating basic personal finance courses in high school. When they, they conducted the next survey in 2028, it's expected that 37 states will either have passed with either an A or B. Of the 37, 23 of them are expected to have an A. And for its part, next-gen personal finance reports that some 17 states are in the process of implementing a personal finance course requirement. States are learning from the success of others around them. The numbers tell the story that mandated courses work and students who take them are mightily better prepared for their futures. Going to college is one of the most important financial decisions an individual is ever going to make. In order to prepare them for that decision, it is vital that students are taught the bare minimum personal finance beforehand. Without it, they may feel the consequences of a poor decision long after they leave their university. There's a role, however, for local school boards. In the case of a specific state, is a void of regulation requiring a substantial personal finance course to be taught. School boards within that state must now step in to handle the matter themselves. When this creates a discrepancy between school districts, specifically looking into students of differing races and household incomes. The school districts most likely to do this require a personal finance course as a local graduation requirement unilaterally are predominantly white districts, meaning they're greater than 75% white and normally rich. The reality, they said, however, is that schools without a statewide personal finance course mandate White, affluent students are more likely to receive financial literacy education than poor, black, and brown students. So basically, personal finance is like a game, but only some of the kids are going to know the rules, right? 
And this analogy persists now, knowing the rules of the game are based heavily on whether the game masters, which is your school boards and your state school boards and your state legislatures, will allow you, the student, to learn them. Many schools are unfit to teach financial literacy. The difficulty behind educating a student on the basics of personal finance is twofold. First, many schools are not equipped to build that curriculum that provides students with the skills. While educators and school boards try their best, there is no mandated outline in many states for schools to follow when constructing a personal finance curriculum. But if the curriculum is being built, what you see a lot of times now in a lot of high schools are certain pathways, maybe business programs that students can take, and within that there is some financial literacy. But for many schools, there are no personal required personal classes, finance classes, and yet 72% of adults respondents in the before-mentioned Ramsey study acknowledge that they would be further ahead in their money today if they had taken a personal finance classes in high school. But to be fair, some organizations such as the Council for Economic Education are providing teachers with free classroom resources and professional development for teacher economics and personal finance. Jumpstart Coalition, NextGen Personal Finance, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Everify, Visa's Practical Money Skills, and the Federal Reserve Education website also offer financial literacy curriculum, lessons, activities, and resources for K-12 classrooms. So why don't schools just usher in new courses? Well, that's the second issue. Many teachers report that both their knowledge in personal finance and their confidence in teaching the subject is lacking. According to a 2014 study focused on ed financial education, then the interventions to improve financial literacy. Any school can rule out personal finance courses aimed at improving financial literacy, but without the proper professionals to relay the information, the content of the course is going to be lost in the translation. Personal finance, finance is far and away cut and dry subject. It comes to teaching personal finance, there are more than meets the eye within a certain curriculum. Yes, there's a part when students learn how to balance a checkbook or take a loan. But what many students and teachers might both struggle to digest is how to teach a young generation to modify its own behavior. Success in financial literacy is literally defined by what you do with your own personal life. It's not just knowledge, it's about behaviors. Just because you can impart the knowledge to some individuals that might be wired in a way that behaviorally they're going to do things that are financially risky. Half the battle is teaching students the skills needed to be financially independent. The other half, arguably more challenging half, is getting through to the students what they have to start with your money and act accordingly. If you're financially risky, you're putting your future in danger. But garnering interest in personal finances can be challenging. Let's look at a, look at a hypothetical scenario. Your local high school recently underwent a complete overhaul of its curriculum. To satisfy many students' desires to become more financially literate, the school mandates a personal finance course can be completed in order to graduate. But to teach that course, the school also must bring in an expert in the field who's capable of teaching the material in the course. In a class of 20 students, maybe half were interested in the lesson being taught. The course content is so important toward preparing a student for life and financial independence, how do you get them to care about it when it comes that time? Well, some high school students, most of them 14 to 18, they're just plain not interested in learning about retirement funds. They don't care about managing debt, budgeting, or saving. So one solution, 
Start students on their path towards financial literacy sooner than high school. Start at a younger age. If you teach a middle school child how to invest in savings, when combi combined with compound interest and the effects of interest, you can see what it gets you. And while some of the concept of personal finance may not apply directly to the interest of middle-aged students, it's easier for young children to understand the importance of personal finance if you twist the material in a way that they, is more relatable. But don't call it a retirement. Call it your toy money. The takeaway here is that the students who understand the subject with a young age begin to develop a desire to learn more. As they progress in school, reach a point where it's time for them to begin taking their own financial decisions, one they can hope can be adopted because they have some interest in the material. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. Don't forget our live show on Saturdays at 11 o'clock. If you got questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. on the show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision.